Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. This is episode 83. I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, it's been, a, been an interesting week this week, man. A lot, of, a lot of news in politics and uh, several, I mean, some big deals happened in the last last two, three days. Uh, we got a few guests coming on. How are things going on your end? Good, man. Good. Everything's good over here in the great state of Texas. And so, uh, yeah, we've got Blackman coming on and Joe Dancy returning again. And, uh, you know, a lot to get to, Josh. And, um, you know, I, I wanted to say, I, so I, I went back last week when I was editing the show and I listened to... Um, something I said, I wanted to kind of clear it up because I probably wasn't articulate as much as I, or, or set the way I want to say. So we were talking about the 14 million a barrel a day increase. And we said, well, okay, there's 3 million barrels in the top, I think it was 2 million barrels or 3 million barrels at the top five counties. And we said, well, that's not really that much oil compared to what's going on. And, and, I, and I think just to be clear, when we sit, when I when I said it, I mean, I mean, you got the fourteen million barrel increase. Um, you have the top five counties were for two million barrels or whatever a day. Um, okay, obviously compared to the fourteen million, that's a pretty big increase compared to the global scale. Um, it was just looking at the the, the hundred million barrels. It's like okay, uh, now we're at one hundred fourteen million barrels. Uh, yeah, now we're at one hundred million barrels. Um, and you you just think about how much oil the U.S. produces. It, it's just those numbers are kind of daunting. Um, expecting me when you continue, you expect the trend to continue. Um, so anyways, cause I've, you know, anyways, so I went back and listened to it. I was like, yeah, well obviously, uh, the way I said it, it sounded more like I was referring to, um, the 14 versus the three, which, you know, that's actually a pretty decent percentage. <laughs> that's almost a fourth of it. So, um, anyways, so I wanted to clear that up. hope that makes more sense. Maybe it's less, maybe it's more murky now, but, um, you know, we got Josh. Uh, two weeks, two weeks. We have our Rodney Strong wine basket giveaway. So, uh, I don't think we have any ratings this week that I saw. And so, if you nope. haven't left a rating review, um, now is the time to do it. Um, go to iTunes, leave a rating review. I leave a link in the show notes. You can just click on that right there. Go to Apple. It takes all of you know thirty seconds to go and do five stars is all we accept. Uh, but go ahead and do that, and you will be entered to win. If you're curious. You can go to LinkedIn and see my the the last month's winner, Brian, and uh, the gift basket. It's a bottle of red, a bottle of white, some snacks, and uh, it's really well done. So thanks to the folks at Righty Strong Wine and Specs. Awesome, awesome. Well, uh, you know, Ryan, we ought to get like a complimentary bottle of that wine. I'd like to, yeah. I'd like to get get my hands on a bottle of it. You know. Yeah, they can send us <laughs> a you know a case or six. You know, yeah, like exactly, exactly. Uh, well, Ryan, you know. Have, uh, with the guests coming on, um, do we want to go ahead and do the Texas Roundup? Yeah, let's hit the Roundup first, Josh, and then we'll uh, wrap it up when they get off. Okay. Well, you know, I mentioned, Ryan, that we had two pretty big deals that came out this week. The first one that uh, I want to mention is uh, Chesapeake Energy. They announced that they're buying Eagleford Operator Wild Horse Resource Development. They're uh, acquiring that for $3.98 billion. Uh, so Chesapeake's making, making – move in the Eagleford uh, this time, you know, it, it, you know, around this quarter coming up. And uh, one, Ryan, we got one that's even bigger. Uh, let's see. It is in Canna. Uh, grabs Newfield for $7.7 7 billion. $7.7 7 billion. Um, 
total research on this, Ryan, uh, looking at uh, 2.2 billion of that 7.7 is actually debt that they're assuming um, from Newfield. So apparently Newfield was having trouble and uh, was, uh, I guess, accruing debt and had to, had to go ahead and unload. So um, good good deal for Incana. Hopefully they can take the company and turn it for a profit and uh, love to see what they're what they're doing this year. But just as a recap, Ryan, we've had several big deals this year. BHP, mm-hmm. uh, BP, mm-hmm. they bought uh, they bought they had a ten point five billion dollar acquisition. Diamondback had a nine point two billion. Uh, and they got uh, Energen and uh, Ajax Resources. And then you know last week we talked about Denberry getting pinned Virginia for one point seven. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, man, these are some these are some big big acquisitions that we're seeing this year. Yeah, it's interesting. That's one of the things I wanted to ask. Uh, I'm going to ask David about um, if I don't forget. But is you know there's a lot of discussion about the shell producers and you know they don't make a lot of money and um, you know it depends on who you read depends on um, you know what they think that the viability of the shell industry is long term and there's a lot of smart people on both sides and so I, I'm curious because. Um, you know, we've talked um, on the show before about some of these producers and some of the positions they make. It's like, how, how are they going to get out of this? So I'm curious to see uh, what Blackman thinks about are the Permian producers kind of out of the woods? Do we feel like these companies are sustainable? One of the things I thought was brought up the other day, maybe it was by Russell Gold or um, I don't know who it was, someone online I saw, and they said that, you know, people kind of freak out about the profit margins that the, perm- the, the shell producers make and how they struggle to make money. And they said, but, you know, the airline industry has always struggled to make money. And there was an, another industry, I can't remember what it was. There's two or three industries they pointed out that they're very similar to how the, the frackers are, um, that they really struggle to make money, but they provide a good service, and they, they're able to do it continually, but they really struggle to make money. Um, and I thought that was an interesting comment. I hadn't really thought about it from that perspective, is that you have something like the airline industry that struggles to make money. Um, you know, can these producers um, work their way out of it? And obviously if you know the price of oil is high you feel like they can do it but then you read it feels like everything's going good and all of a sudden you read well the decline rates are increasing and this and that so um obviously david's got his hand on the pulse of uh finger on the pulse of all that kind of stuff so i'm curious to get in that with him today yeah i'm looking forward to that and to some of that uh, he, he actually re- recently released course we're going to get into uh, about some of this trade stuff going on so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. looking forward to it it's been a while since we've even gotten david on he's uh he's been he's been busy lately yeah, he's a busy man. He's a busy man, but uh, it is good to get him back. It, it will be good to get back on, and so um, got him and got Joe Dancy coming on, like we said. Um, and so um, he, if you remember last time, he was the one who was talking about all the sand stuff and was kind of like really breaking that down, and that was I thought intriguing. So look forward to seeing what they have on today. All right, we have our uh, recurring guest, Mr. David Blackman, a Forbes contributor. David, it's been a while since we have you on the show, man. How's it been going lately? Hey, just great. How y'all doing today? Doing good, good man. Doing I, got, good. I, I got a slight bone to pick with you, David. It says on Skype. Oh, yeah, when I went to call you on Skype, it says it's been six months since I've called you on Skype. You can't you can't become like a biannual type of guest, David. We need we need your insight more often than that. No, we were <laughs> we we just did this a couple of months ago. Uh, oh, was, you know what though? We did it on a cell phone call for oh, some reason. Oh, okay. Maybe that's what it was. I got on there, I was like, God, it's been six months since we had him on. That yeah, was, no, it hadn't been okay. that long. Okay, well, good. Well, we'll let you slide this time. It's good to have you back, though. Yeah, glad to be here. Uh, well, let's get into it. We got a lot to cover. I know. Let's start off with your piece that you put out um, 
on the uh, with with Forbes, as Josh mentioned, the oil and gas situation, volatility, trade wars beginning to take a toll. Um, you kind of lay out a lot of things. What's going on here? Kind of break that down because that's going to kind of lead into some of the other discussions we're going to have today. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, we're having a lot of issues right now that uh, will eventually be solved, and some maybe sooner than than we anticipated. Um, but some are going to take a year. You know, we we have this. Uh, pipeline bottleneck coming out of the Permian Basin that's kind of limiting uh, what, you know, how how rapidly production can grow out of that basin. Uh, we have the tariffs on imports of steel that are impacting some of the midstream projects in particular around the country. And, you know, and also raising costs in downstream developments too. We have several big pipeline, uh, sorry, refinery expansions going on. Right now, and and you know, if they're Im- having to import steel, then that's raising their costs. And and even in the upstream segment of the business, you use a lot of steel, and have a lot of costs involved that way. So so those are going to have an impact. We have um, you know limitations right now on our ability to export crude out of some of our ports. The Port of Corpus Christi is still struggling to get Congress to to live up to its obligations and fund its one-third of a $330 million project to expand and deepen that port. And um, it's still a couple of years away from from getting a satellite terminal built. So, you know, all these things are just kind of serving to not not end the, the, the drilling boom that we have going on. That's still going on just fine. But it's going to limit our ability to grow over the next year or so. And uh, so that's what that piece was all about, just that, you know, we've, we've got this boom in place. And probably over the next 12 months, uh, the growth of it, the continuing growth, is going to be somewhat limited. Josh, it sounds like David's been listening to the show a lot. (laughs) (laughs) These are all things we've been talking about, which is why we wanted to get you on. So let's talk about the pipeline bottleneck. Um, Someone, Wood McKenzie, I don't remember who it is, put out a report that uh, says that pipeline capacity right now is within 100,000 barrels of um, what production is, but by next year it's like a 2 million barrel excess. Let's say that those numbers um, are all true. Um, by the end of 2019, what impact will that have if we have two million barrels of uh, excess oil uh, or, or pipeline capacity for uh, production? Will, will production ramp up to yeah. meet that, or are we going to see, you know, what pipeline companies sitting around going, "Wow, we we just built too much too much uh, infrastructure here"? Well, well, production will ramp up, but it's not going to be able to ramp up that rapidly. Obviously, right. uh, you know, we might grow half a million barrels a day over the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's going to happen is we're going to have, and we already have, in a kind of a blowout in uh, in transportation costs, the rates that these pipelines can charge to people who don't have reserve capacity on their lines. That's that's way up right now. It's probably going to go higher. Uh, but then as these new projects come online and you develop this glut in capacity, mm-hmm. uh, suddenly the transportation rates are going to go way down and it's going to be a boon to the producers out there in the Permian. I, I worked for a company, Burlington Resources, back in, in the 90s and early 2000s. We had a similar type of uh, uh, problem develop in the San Juan Basin of New Mexico. We were the biggest producer out there. And and for about two years, we had a real, you know, a huge boom in drilling and a real lack of capacity, takeaway capacity for natural gas. And so we had a big blowout in pipeline prices uh, during that time. But then a couple of expansions and a new pipeline came in. And all of a sudden, 
there was an excess of capacity and, you know, transportation rates just went way down. And, and that happens in any boom situation like this, really, anywhere in the country. Uh-huh. That's what's going to happen because the midstream waits until there's a plenty of production there to justify the building of their new new capacity, right? You don't want to build capacity before there's demand. And so it's always kind of a lag there, and, and you end up with these blowouts, and then you end up with gluts of takeaway capacity. So right. just kind of how the industry works. Oh, yeah. We talk, we've talked about that before, is that, you know, depending on where you're at in the industry, if you're going through a downturn, it depends on when that impacts you. So if you're on the drilling side right. and you hit a downturn, you're going to get it pretty quick. Well, if you're in midstream, it'll be, like, it'll be like the next year, second year, you know, you're starting to feel the impact because they were built all those pipelines, and then by the time – um, you know, we did a lot of mystery work, so we kind of survived the first year. The second year was really tough. And then uh, when drilling started picking back up, we were still slow because pipeline companies weren't willing to uh, to go back out there. So it's you're, right. you're, you're, yeah. you're, you're all this um, kind of, uh, you know, I don't want to say cat and mouse game, but kind of um, capacity and tight market, market grows and shrinks. You mentioned the port. You know, we, no, wait, one, before we leave that, so one more thing people need to understand, too, is is this why is, is why when you have these booms, Early in them, you have a lot of flaring of natural gas because uh, you have to you you want to produce the wells right. They're mainly oil wells, and right. so you want to be able to get the production out of the ground. But the natural gas doesn't have any way to be transported, so mm-hmm. you end up with a lot of flaring early on. But then the capacity gets built, and all that gas goes into a pipeline. So that's exactly. why it happens. Okay, you mentioned the port. Obviously, on this show, we have made our position very clear. We're pro-port. Um, but it feels like, uh, and, and I call them Trafigura. I've never heard the name pronounced, but they're a huge yeah. uh, trading firm yeah. um, over in Switzerland or Sweden. I always get it back. Swiss. Swiss. Yeah, they're Swiss Swiss, company, Swiss. Yeah. that's right. Okay. So they're huge. And they came out a month or two ago and said, hey, guess what? We're going to do our own thing. Uh, the port kind of came out and said, no, oh, that's terrible, and woe is me. And, you know, on the show, we kind of – you know, Josh and I were you know, we, one of the things we've talked about is why can't we get private funding? Um, David, with the Carlisle Group coming out this week, said they're partnering with the Port of Corpus Christi. Mm-hmm. It feels like to me, Trafigura should be applauded here for getting all this moving because the port has been um, stuck in bureaucracy, for lack of a better term, for so long that maybe Trafigura is kind of the icebreaker that's going to get this deal done and move forward. And I, my thought, and I think Josh agrees as well, is that we figure that Trafigura will eventually. Um, join partners with the Port of Corpus Christi to help them fund it to get this done. What's your take on what's going on here with the port and um, the recent news? Well, you know, the problem for the port, and 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 I'm very pro-port too, I just think it's been such a boon to Corpus Christi, and I love that city. And, um, and you know, um, Sean Strawbridge does great work mm-hmm. down there. Mm-hmm. But the, their problem is that the Army Corps of Engineers has to do that work, right? And so even when you get the funding for it, um, you, they're, you know, they, they're going to issue debt to fund two thirds of it, trying to prod Congress into action. Uh, but even if you say, let's say you found private funding for the other third of their expansion, well, you still got to get the core to do the work Okay. and Congress still has to authorize that where the Trafigura projects out in the Gulf of Mexico, it's totally privately funded. They don't have to have the Army Corps of Engineers do anything because they're in deep water and plenty deep to uh, land and fully fill these VLCC tankers. So, I mean, that's the only issue the Port of Corpus Christi has right now is that they just can't fully load these biggest class of tankers. And and those are becoming used more and more and more as time goes on. So, uh, yeah, so the Trafigure project is interesting, but even it, 
when you really look at their presentation, I saw their presentation. It's really, you know, it's a good presentation. Well, they still haven't gotten all their permits in place, and that's going to take some time. And then once they do, it's still going to take time, more time to to build the thing. And in the meantime, Port of Corpus Christi has this deal going with the Carlisle Group on on Harbor Island. And one of those is going to get finished first, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I mean, I, it's going to be interesting to see which one of them can actually get their terminal in place first. The other thing that, that Trafigure also has to do is build a pipeline to the onshore, right? And to interconnect mm-hmm. with onshore pipelines. And uh, so it's a pretty complex project. I just, you know, I mean, I'm glad there's a lot of interest in it because we, we need the additional capa- export capacity. I just, you know, I hate that there's uh, this competition and, and kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, I hope there's not developing bad feelings between the two groups because of it. Well, yeah, yeah and my thought on that is uh, agreed, but Trafigura has the money to do the project. They are a huge, yeah. huge company. Yeah. And Trafigura, yeah. even, even if they don't do it, they're still going to want to use the port. The port's still going to use them because Trafigure, they're involved in oil deals all over the globe. So they have got yeah, the hands yeah. and everything. So, um, you know, I was, we kind of, you know, we, we like Sean Strawbridge on the show as well. And, you know, his comments about them, I thought were a little bit off base, mainly because they're taking their business right now. But that's that's a story for another day. Um, so a couple of things let's talk about before we get you out of here. We're running a little bit short on time now. So first off, we wanted to hit, um, we're talking about this right before we came on, Premium producers, we're, we're seeing uh, mergers and acquisitions. We're seeing deals. Mm-hmm. Do we feel like the shale industry? Um, and, and I was telling Josh, I, I read something to, uh, online. You may see. I think Russell Gold was saying that people always worry about the the shale producers about not not making money or not making enough money. Right. And he he akin it to the airline industry. He said the airline industry always struggles to make money, but they they stay in business. They keep doing stuff. And I thought that's an interesting comparison. I haven't heard people kind of look at that, but. Um, the fear, every time I feel like the, the shell industry is going good, the next thing you hear is declining well rates, they can't make it, you know, no one wants no one wants to oil. Are the Permian producers especially, because that's the kind of the, the hot area right now, are they safe? Are they, uh, do we, is this industry um, past its financial woes? Have we kind of figured out the long-term model to make money uh, as a shell producer in your opinion? Yeah, I think I think for the most part you have. I, you know, there's never going to be a time in our industry when there aren't companies uh, that are having financial difficulties. You mm-hmm. know, companies. Every company's different and has different capital structure and different management. And then some of them make mistakes and get in a bad situation. But, but I mean, take a look at Pioneer Natural Resources if you want to really know how how rich the Permian is. Pioneer is an incredibly successful company that has produced all over the United States and even internationally over the years. They are they are targeting their entire business to the Permian Basin. Okay, they're in the process of of divesting all of their other assets everywhere else in the United States so that they can become a strictly Permian producer. Well, I mean, when you see a company like that doing that, you you have to realize that. Yes, shale is a money-making proposition. It just is. That that article that was in the New York Times a few weeks ago was a, was just a bad joke, and it was based on uh, data compiled by an environmentalist organization up in Canada, and it was just abject nonsense. Um, and if you can't be making money at these prices right now with the cost structure that's in place in the Permian Basin, well, then, you know, you've just got problems. you got some management problems, probably. <laughs> and... Uh, Reality is, yeah, no, I, the shale industry is here to stay. It's in its very early stages, frankly. We're only 10 years into oil shale, right. and it's going to be around and very profitable for a long time. 
Okay, two quick things before we let you out of here. First off, um, let's talk about the stainless shield and we'll go international. So API on uh, the former show that me and used to co-host with with uh, now Ellen's on Energy Week. Their chief economist Dean Foreman came on the other day and was talking about the break-even cost. And we've talked about the break-even cost. Me and you on there, off the air, and this kind of quick rehash. Break-even cost is is this? It's not a it's not a true number. It's not like it's really there for everyone. But they but essentially they're saying that that the technology for drilling and natural gas can make companies profitable at two dollars for natural gas, which is a big if if it's true, a, a huge statement because natural gas. You know, it yeah. sits above two, barely, most <laughs> of the time. Um, so my question for you, David, is um, if that's true, we, we expect everyone seems to universally agree that, you know, gas demand will go up over time. Um, but Dean's comment was, is, you know, it's going to go up, um, but not enough. Uh, it, the, but the price won't go up because we can drill it um, at relentlessly, yeah. if you will. Being that yeah. we see that natural gas, let's just assume it's true, that roughly $2 is a profitable margin for um, natural gas producers in the U.S. Do you think we're going to see companies diversify or maybe transition their portfolio uh, maybe a little bit away from oil and focus more on natural gas, maybe something like the Eagleford or the Barnett or the Haynesville, where they say, you know what, we can kind of get maybe a, a consistent return long-term here because um, we know that we can drill it for two, the price will be around three, it may shoot up to four, um, but it also will kind of keep out a boom, if you will, because everyone knows that the margins are kind of tighter there. What, what are your thoughts on that? No, I, well, my thought is, I mean, there is some shift going on, but it's very gradual uh, just in terms of companies becoming more and more interested in natural gas. Because what has to happen is you, you have to build more demand for it before you can really continue to ramp up production. But we are seeing some increased production levels, like in the Haynesville here over the last year, has become a, a lot more productive and, and in the Marcellus. But uh, otherwise, around the country, there's not an additional huge interest in natural gas and and the other reality facing gas producers is once the pipeline build out does happen out of the permian there's a ton of new natural gas mm -hmm. production that's going to be coming into these plants out of the permian and there's a concern right now that we don't have enough fractionation capacity down around Houston and Galveston to handle all the new natural gas that's going to be coming out of there to, to process it. So um, I, I just think the natural gas market is tight. It's going to remain tight in terms of, of who's going to be producing it. And we're going to have a steadily, you know, a very low rig count for a long, long time just because of that. Okay, we'll let you go with this. 30 seconds-ish. Um, Iran deal is going to come up in, what, is it Sunday, I believe, something like that. Um, yeah, Monday. Monday, they're reimplementing okay. all the sanctions. Yep. Yeah, Ellen has said multiple times that she thinks that Iran's going to be stubborn. They're not going to renegotiate. Uh, President Trump doesn't look like he's going to budge. It feels like if those two announcements are right that this, this deal will have – you know, impact for six months, a year, two years, whatever the case may be. Um, Venezuela obviously doesn't look like it's turning it around. Um, that all sounds like good news for Permian producers. It feels like um, there's, I mean, obviously there's always anything can happen in the oil and gas business. So you could have prices plummet, but the path to get to low prices doesn't seem like it's around the corner. Um, what are your thoughts on what we're seeing globally with some of these, uh, the sanctions in Iran and um, with the crumbling Venezuela economy, as you will? How's that going to impact prices? Um, in the yeah, next year or so. I agree with Ellen. I think we're in a situation that, you know, once all this market instability kind of works out after the election's over, you're going to see that we're still in a situation where the price is going to gradually rise. And mm -hmm. uh, we'll probably be in the low 70s by the end of this year and, you know, up into the mid 70s throughout 2019. And I just think because that's just kind of where OPEC and Russia want it and they're able to pretty much control it.
Yep. And, you know, there's a piece in the Wall Street Journal by gold. He, uh, we talked about last week on the show, the global demand for oil has increased 14 million barrels a day over the last eight years. And, you know, Johnson and I were commenting that I don't care what you think about electric cars or solar or whatever. Um, if you're just really practical, it's hard to see that the long-term global demand for oil does just not continue to grow over the next 20, 30, 40, probably 100 years. And uh, yeah. I think that's good news for folks like me and you and Josh who are all in the business. It is, and that's what's going to happen. So, David, uh, we ran ran out of time. I know we had more more we wanted to talk to you about in depth. Uh, thank you for coming on. It's good to have you back on. Hopefully, it won't be another couple months before we get you back on the show. And uh, in the meantime, people can find you Forbes, DB Daily Update, Shell Mag. Did we leave anything out? Uh no. Okay, that's it. All right. Hey, thanks for having me, man. This was fun. Yep. Thanks, David. All right. All right. But today we have a guest that we had on several months ago. This is Joe Dancy. He's the executive director uh, director of the Oil and Gas Natural Resources and Energy Center. Um, Joe, how's it going this week, bud? Oh, it's going really good, Ryan. We've had a good week. Uh, we've had an executive seminar here at the University of Oklahoma with a bunch of energy experts. So I have a lot of real interesting stuff that they talked about that will be uh, fun to discuss today if we have time. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's been a it's been a few months, I guess, Joe, since I got to see you the last time up there at the University of Oklahoma. Um, you, before we get into the what you've been doing, let's kind of remind the listeners what you guys have going on at the University of Oklahoma and the program that you offer for folks that are inter- interested in postgraduate energy degrees. Well, it's an undergraduate degree. We have a several uh, online programs, including a master's in legal studies and energy law. And essentially, that's what I'm teaching you. And that's what, what the, uh, this is the capstone sort of week of the program where we bring the students in. We have students from North Dakota. We have students from Alaska, California, Colorado. And they all come in for a week-long uh, executive energy uh, program. And I know you came up and spoke uh, to our uh, engineering uh, students, undergraduates, and we actually have a online uh, natural gas engineering program also, which quite frankly is probably way over my head, but it's offered uh, in a hydrology program. So we have, and as you saw, and I know Ryan, uh, you got on some of our drilling simulators over in the engineering school, which is sort of fun to play with. But uh, in any event, we have a lot of online uh, master's programs that are, you can take at your own leisure and, uh, and you don't have to quit your job. And if you're in Midland, Texas, you can take the uh, courses here in Norman, Oklahoma, you know, without driving other than the one week out of uh, a 15-month period is uh, we spend in Norman, and we uh, it's a lot of fun. Okay, well, you mentioned you were at an event this week. Um, what is the word on the, sh- on the street? Because it feels like uh, there's always some kind of headline going on at some conference. So tell us what you're hearing out there today. Well, actually, what I do in my class for the last week, and I bring in speakers, and I brought in seven speakers. They all have excellent sort of called domain knowledge. It's almost like you got an inside wire to the oil and gas business. And what I'm going to talk about, what they were most bullish about, was both the oil and the service sectors. And they brought some stuff up that a lot of the students, a lot of our students about a third of them are landmen. We have a number of geologists and engineers. A lot of them have not heard about some of these sort of developments that are ongoing and i guess the first one dealing with just oil and we'll talk about oil and and services and drilling i natural gas is is a a little less bullish outlook and it's pretty much um more foggy so i most experts pretty much 
think the natural gas market is going to just go sideways here for the next year or so. But oil and drilling and services, uh, the consensus is bullish. And number one, the big thing a lot of people haven't heard about is there's a there's a new mandate out. It's called IMO 2020, and what it requires is that ships, you know, the ocean liners, that they have to change their fuel that they use. They usually use like high sulfur, uh, two or three percent or more sulfur uh, percentage of you know, sort of the dregs of the oil refiner barrel. Uh, historically, and what's going to happen as of January 1st, 2020, which is only you know 14 months away, um, essentially they're going to have to burn uh, much cleaner, much lower sulfur fuels, which is going to put a major impact on the diesel market, the jet fuel market. Um, some companies like Raymond James and Associates out of Houston think it's going to take, effectively take like a million or two million barrels a day of oil off the global market and it, it doesn't sound like much but we use 100 million barrels a day so it's one or two percent and that's sort of the incremental production and they're and it's not you know they're taking the stuff the high sulfur stuff is really difficult i mean it's going to be interesting to see what they do with it because it's uh it's it, you know it's ideal for ships but it um it is not of much use elsewhere due to the environmental implications so that was the first you know big surprise and i guess uh the other stuff they talk about is, you know, it has been noted in the past. Venezuela, yeah, actually, they continue in decline. The Iran sanctions, you know, the consensus was the Iranian sanctions are going to be much more stringent than a lot of people expect. So they expect more oil to be taken off the global market because of those sanctions. And sort of a couple of surprises uh, that came up is, um, these are, <laughs> along with the IMO 2020, uh, is in Colorado. They're voting on proposition. We're voting on proposition 112. And if we, when it passes or if it passes, uh, it'll be interesting to see if it's immediately implemented. What it requires is that you have to stay at least 2,500 feet away from a vulnerable site, which essentially is going to pretty much shut down oil and gas exploration and production uh, in Colorado, uh, production activities anyway. And so we call that up uses around 400,000 barrels per day of oil. So when this act is um, voted on and reviewed, et cetera, the experts said, you know, the, the world market is not expecting this. If Colorado votes to restrict oil and gas access, um, they're going to see an immediate and sharp decline in production, which is going to take 100 to 200 thousand barrels a day off the market um this is in addition to all the other you know problems and and uh, and we'll know we'll, we'll know relatively soon there may be uh, the the sort of caveat with that is there may be some lawyers jump in and get a temporary injunction that, that you can't enforce it but i guarantee you uh, as it goes through the courts people are not going to spend money in colorado because you don't know what type of uh you don't know what type of um <laughs> returns or future you're going to have with regard to that. You don't develop a prospect if you don't know what type of return of capital you're going to get and whether you're going to be able to continue to drill. And for what they had to say, I mean, it sounds really reasonable. It's like, well, we want to protect the vulnerable, in, you know, vulnerable um, places like parks and schools and uh, public places. But 2,500 feet is, you know, it's a long way. And so it will effectively pretty much that includes not only drilling but also pipeline activities and you know pumping stations so it's gonna 
Yeah, people in Colorado, it's going to be very interesting. And from what it looks like, it's going to, it'll pass, and it'll be interesting to see. There'll be a bunch of legal battles, which for us lawyers, you know, it'll be a blast, <laughs> a blast in a negative type of way. But it's going to impact very positively on the price of oil. So, so that was exciting. I hadn't heard much about that. I know it's, um, and to me, and here's my take on things, Ryan. It's, you know, we live in a country where if you own the surface, you have the right to use Beyond the minerals, you have the right to use the minerals in development. And the surface provision is going to, will essentially, you know, condemn or take the minerals without really compensating the mineral owners. So from my standpoint as a law professor and just an industry supporter and an oil and gas investor, you know, I think this is the worst thing that could ever happen to the state of, uh, state of Colorado with regard to mineral owners, with regard to leasing, with regard to companies, with regard to employment. But then again, you know, we live in a democracy, and if the, most people don't want oil and gas developed, I mean, that's their prerogative. The problem is you just can't take people's property. I, I can't come in if I like your house, you know, just condemn it without paying you money, but regardless whether I'm the government or, or whoever. I, and that's the same thing. That's the same analogy with minerals. And so that's, that's exciting. The next uh, point that went on, we had uh, some experts that had some companies. Actually, they owned a number of service companies out in the Permian. And they said uh, things are running. The the foot is to the floor out there. There 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 actually uh, there's almost no way you're going to get additional activity out in the Permian just because the constraints with regard to transportation, with regard to roads, with regard to everything else. And they said, you know, in about a year, what's going to happen is you know there's a restriction now on pipeline takeaway capacity, and so there's a lot of stuff that's shut in or or waiting to be completed because they're waiting for the pipeline to be completed. And uh, they said even when the pipeline's completed, they don't expect uh, production growth to continue like it has in the past. And here's a real secret. I hadn't thought about this, but what they said is, you know, coming come sometime between April and June, you have all these ducks drilled and uncompleted, uh, uncompleted wells. And what's going to happen as these people see that the, you know, the pipeline's going to be constructed and put online in November or December. They're going to order up, you know, let's, let's start completing our wells now. We have thousands of these. There's going to be a mad rush for companies that do completions. And, you know, to date, a lot of those companies have laid off people. They haven't kept up their equipment because they're, they're essentially, you know, they haven't made enough profits to reinvest in their equipment. So, um, you know, come April through June, there's going to be a mad boom in completion requests. And it goes, once it starts, it's going to snowball because a company, if you have a bunch of these ducks and you realize, you know, unless we contract now for completion, we're not going to be able to complete, you know, for months because you're going to be all tied up. You're going to have a huge boom in that. And it'll, it'll, uh, it'll take some time. And they said, really, that's part of the problem with the infrastructure. We don't have enough. You know, people, you know, a 50-man, I think they said frat crew or fat frat, or what they call the, the frat outfit. But, I mean, that's a lot of people, and they're going to need, you know, hundreds of, of uh, these frat, um, you know, frat, frat operations as well as crews to go around because, you, you know, there's literally thousands of wells out there. And so they said it's going to be a big, uh, it's gonna be a big bottleneck, which uh, so everybody says, oh, yeah, the Permian is going to save us with, you know, another million barrels of oil. Well, it's not going to happen. The experts tell me it's not going to happen. I mean, we might increase it, but it's going to be very disappointing as the 
which is going to be very bullish. So they see, I mean, in, in summary of all this, the, the experts see, number one, higher oil prices over the next year, maybe substantially higher. And I, I just want to throw into this also. One of the experts talked about um, Saudi Arabia and being a swing producer. And, you know, we they said, when I guess the other experts you know, sort of relate this, you know, said, look at global oil inventories. They've been dropping out consistently and they'll continue the drop. And we're at sort of getting into the red zone where it's very concerning with regard to how little inventory we had. And when President uh, Trump asked uh, the Saudi Arabians to increase production here uh, a few months ago, they did. And, of course, the question is, you know, how do they do that? Well, they, they're not investing the money. I, if you, and I don't have it. I can't do it on the radio. But essentially the capital that the Saudis and everybody else globally is is spending in the service sector has decreased substantially, you know, over the last three or four years, including in Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia increased production, but they took it out of storage. And uh, they, in the opinion of the experts that, and these guys are, you know, they, most of them have, you know, decades of domain knowledge and have been over there. They say they think Saudi can, they are pretty much producing flat out is what the story is. So the, the, the surprise on, the oil markets may be, you know, real. Um, unfortunately, it may may be substantially uh, higher spikes in prices, which um, is going to drive further the the activity in the U.S. shale basins, and for service companies, it's going to increase drilling, you know, needs for bits, for pipe, for pipelines, for rigs, for crew, and um, and I asked, you know, one of the Speakers owns like three companies out in Midland, and I said, "How much?" And I started on your on your uh, truck out there because he has like eight, twelve trucks. I forget exactly what they do, but I said, "If I started on your truck, what would you pay me to live in Midland?" And, and he said, "Well, if you were you know the the guy off the street that doesn't know anything, I'll give you a green hat, and essentially you work it out in the hundred degree heat." But he goes, "You'll make a hundred thousand a year." Of course, you have to you're living in Midland, so it's not cheap to live out there. And, and the joke is, it's you know, there's not much to do out there other than work. But right. uh, he said, you know, just getting getting crew. He goes, I got you know three or four trucks that I just can't get the crew for. And he goes, it's going to get worse as we go forward, and there's more and more demand uh, as we as the pipelines get built out. So uh, so that's sort of exciting. And of course, our our students, we have 28 of them, again um, from all over the country, and they're landmen, et cetera. And so for them, it's a very bright future, in my opinion, over the next two or three years with regard to oil prices, oil activities, leasing activities, landman activities, trading, dealing, buying and selling properties. It's, uh, and you know, as a professor, it's sort of nice to see that because you always like to teach stuff that you think is going to be useful and get people decent jobs or get promotions. So it's, uh, it's fun. And, and you've seen our students yourself. I've been on the Oklahoma campus, which is beautiful, and you know, drilled the... Uh, Use the simulator to, you know, we drilled a well on the Gulf Shore, Gulf of Mexico, which was fun with our engineering cohorts over there. So, anyway, that's that's what's going on, Ryan. Yeah, a lot to cover there. So, one thing I want to talk about real quick: um, the Colorado deal. Not not from the standpoint of, you know, what the laws are and stuff, but you mentioned some um, philosophical and ethical type um, things that go from there. And just I can just tell you, first off, I do think it you are infringing on someone's right when you when you are essentially stealing their 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 minerals from them um but the but the follow-up to that is and i think this is 
this is just you know, we're, we're Josh and I make free, we're free market guys. I don't think the market um, makes bad decisions pay for themselves. And, and and so if Colorado wants to pass this and they they want to steal minerals and uh, landowners' rights and things like that, you know, I think the appropriate response for the market is is that the market should say, well, okay, you know, we're gonna have to charge more to compensate for the effort it's going to take to get the product there um, and things like that. It seems like that's usually, um, if you look at what happened in the Northeast over the winter, um, last year's winter, you know, they had, you know, they didn't have enough natural gas and so it was kind of get tied up there. And, and it feels like that bad decisions sometimes in America get bailed out. That's a story for a different day. Um, but let's talk about the, the, the oil and the bullish sentiment. We just had David Blackman on. Um, Ellen and I have talked on our other show. Josh and I have talked. There doesn't really seem to be a path uh, in the next 12 months, really, to get back to low oil prices. And a lot of the things that you brought up um, are, are good indicators of that. But the ducks I found really interesting because there's a lot of ducks that are sitting out there, but you're hearing that you think these ducks could come online mid-year next year? I've heard that, and I was surprised, too. And I was pretty, and I've, I've known uh, the, part, actually the person who uh, discussed this was kind of in the service uh, sector and as a data company, a data data consulting for some major companies, and um, initially as what the companies and operations in the Permian, and they said, you know, with uh, I've heard a lot of these, you know, they said, oh, they're going to like you heard that ducks are going to sit out there for years and they're not going to be completed, but from what you know, from what I've been told, you know, if you're an investor and you spent the money and drilled, filled the well. You know, you, the, as you know, the longer you wait, you the discounted value of money. You, your investors want their money back. And so as soon as that pipeline opens up, and right now there's a discrepancy between, you know, the West Texas intermediate price you get in Midland and the West Texas intermediate price you get, say, in Corpus Christi or, or Houston Ship Channel. Uh, it's, it's, I, I've heard everywhere from $5 to $15. I haven't followed it lately, but I know it varies depending on, you know, like everything else in the oil business. But you know, that, that discrepancy is going to disappear. So the Midland people are going to get higher oil prices. They're going to be able to ship out and immediately, when you're looking for cash flow, Ryan, that's, that's actually my course. Is I teach energy project finance uh, in this master's in legal studies online program. And the deal is you want to maximize your cash flow. And one way is, you know, with higher oil prices, that helps. Secondly, the volumes, and you can sell more stuff. And you, you, you obviously, if you have a duck, if it hasn't completed well, you're not selling more stuff, but you put it online and it comes online at, you know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 barrels a day, depending on how long it is, where it is, what type of how you pack it, how hard you pull it, um, et cetera, your cash flow is going to increase substantially. So it's really, and of course, investors are like, well, you know, they want that cash flow because then once you have it, you can actually. Um, you can actually sell the property or, or you know, pay dividends or pay um, you know, partnership uh, you know, distributions, et cetera. But you know, when you have a dock that's just sitting there and it's a, it's a you know, $5 million expenditure, like sitting in the bank without a, it's not even earning any interest, and then you complete it, and then it's like, well, then you get a bunch of interest and dividends and everything else that, uh, you know, makes everything system. I've heard, yeah, there's going to be a, and the word he used was frenzy, you know, starting around April or May or June. And the way I'm going to play that, I do know there are some, um, <laughs> there are a number of public companies that deal with completions uh, in the Permian. Um, and I won't mention names on the air, but uh, if you go out there and, and, you know, starting after the first year of January or February, you know, acquiring positions, I think by July 4th, by July 4th, uh, 
you'll do incredibly well. And, and I'm actually, I'm faculty advisor for the SMU Spindletop Undergraduate Managed Fund. I manage part of the endowment, and I think this is a play that they're going to look at very closely because I've sort of told them, hey, find some companies, and, you know, we might want to, it's a timing play, but I don't have to, also a long-term play because we, um, when I was out in the, out in the Permian, uh, out in Midland in December, you know, I talked to a number of operators and they took us to some fields and they were talking about even then one of the biggest problems is getting a good completion crew. And they said, you know, we spend $5 million and you don't want a bunch of, um, uh, bunch of uh, incompetent or relatively competent or inexperienced people you know, completing your well. You want good completion people when you when you have that much money at stake. And they said it's really difficult to find good completion people. And it takes what they were doing. You know, they were. They said you know, that's one reason when you hire them, you you then just don't complete one well. You have them do five in a row or ten in a row because they you have them and they're there and you know they're going to do the good work. And now when all this when all this comes to a head here in the spring, um, I think it's going to get real exciting. Although, like I say, the, the Permian expert said, you know, really with what might limit it, you know, the, is the supply. You don't have enough qualified people to run enough crews. And so, you know, the, the, the bidding and the cost of completion, you know, may go through the roof when you have, you know, 10 people calling you and you have one, you know, you will have one uh, completion uh, crew that can go out or five completion crews and you have 50 people. I mean, it, it sounds like, like I said, the word I heard was frenzy and, you know, being an oil and gas guy and having invested in oil and gas uh, and oil and gas companies, you know, to me, when I hear frenzy, it sounds like, you know, you, you want to get in on the wave before it crests. And so uh, it should be, should be exciting. And it's, it's great for um, jobs. It's great for the economy. It's great for leases. It's great for um, yeah, service companies. So it should be should be fun. And Joe, you mentioned at that that, uh, that conference, uh, going back to that uh, Colorado bill that they're discussing. I think it's Initiative ninety seven, and they may have changed names since I've read on it. Um, are they saying that uh, that it looks like that is going to pass? Is that what you said? What the experts tell me, and I'm I'm totally shocked. I mean, I yeah, that's shocking think, to me. That is, yeah, I, I, they, they said, in their opinion, it's going to pass. And um, of course, the joke is um, everybody in our most of the people in our in our programs are in the oil industry. Although we have a few wind people that are uh, in our programs, and uh, you know, it is, you know, the, the joke is, you know, all the Californians that wanted to ban, you know, oil, the oil industry have, you know, moved to Cal- Colorado. And, um, and, and the, the concept is, you know, really salable. It's like, well, yes, you know, we'll let them drill their well as long as they stay 2,500 feet away from vulnerable uh, infrastructure or vulnerable, like I say, which includes parks, schools. And, you know, the way the expert said is that what's really deceptive is you don't think about it, but, you know, those areas and those oil fields, you know, it will severely restrict where you can drill, how much you can drill, how much it's going to cost to drill. And so why would you mess with Colorado and the restrictions there when um, you can go to the Permian Base and I think and I personally, I saw this coming two years ago or three years ago. There's a number of good companies that are up there in the Niobrara, and they're undervalued, and they have reserves. 
But I, you know, I saw the political climate in Colorado and said, hey, I will keep my money in Oklahoma. I will keep my money in Texas because these states understand property rights. These states understand the value of oil. These states understand how important energy is to the economy. And, I mean, Colorado, you know, bless them. They can sell all the marijuana they want. But um, the oil industry is really where the wealth is generated. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm looking uh... – one last thing, Ryan. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking at it. It's showing that the. I mean, if if this bill is a pass, it could lay off over a hundred thousand people, uh, because of the way it's written. That 2,500 foot setback. I mean, it could decimate the Colorado's oil and oil and natural gas industry in the sector there. Well, on top of that, Ryan, I, I, this is what I have, and I feel bad for those people too, because I mean, it's a great Denver's a great city. I mean, the whole the state. It's a great state. But the other thing most people haven't thought about, and I hadn't thought about, and, I didn't, and this shocked me, just like it's sort of shocking you that it might pass or has a good chance of passing, is the fact that, uh, you know, it's 400,000 barrels per day. As soon as they stop drilling, you know, all these wells have pretty substantial decline curves. And they said, you know, you're going to see an impact on the global supply of oil just because of this Colorado proposition. Assuming, again, I think what's going to happen in reality, being a lawyer and they person who talked was not a lawyer but was an engineer and a operator and uh you know i said you know probably a lawyer could go in and probably get a, hopefully an injunction to stop enforcement of the act until it's you know the constitutionality is ruled on that being said um operations are going to stop because you're not not knowing whether this is going to be enforceable or not you're not going to spend any money in colorado you're going to go you're going to go to the permanent basin you're going to scoop and stack um, you know, you'll go to the Bakken, you'll go elsewhere if you can, and the values of those properties are, are going to be, you know, substantially impacted. And so I feel, well, bad for the employees, I, bad for the, really the state of Colorado. I feel bad for the shareholders in these firms. But I mean, like the person said, it's like, you know, we live in a democracy, and if that's what the citizens of Colorado want, then it, it's, it's going to be, it's, it, the impacts will be substantial, and you'll see them relatively quickly. And a lot of it will be localized too, which is not not good for Colorado. Yeah. Final thing on that: as we all know, you know, leases are held by activity, and so if this gets tied up where the drillers cannot drill, um, you could have leases that are expiring that these companies paid for, and then someone could, in theory, come in and snatch them up later on. So the courts will also have to deal with um, what the, you know if if they have to stop drilling. They can't get an injunction, let's say. The courts have to deal with what's going to happen with these leases while the court proceedings are going on. If they can continue to drill, then the producers, if they want to, can choose to keep the leases that they have in Colorado. That's going to be a big fight that's going to be um, looked at by the courts, I would imagine. Yeah, exactly. That actually came up also. The um, Yeah, just without you, you know, you generally have, to, you, know, you have a lease for like a three or four or five year period generally, and that lease expires if there's no production activity or no drilling activity. And the question is, if this if this is all held in the court system for two or three years, a lot of those leases may expire. So, the the other people this is going to hurt is, you know, generally you get a lease, and actually the APS could. We have a few North, we have a few uh, people that are familiar with the Colorado leasing. And it's like, you know, there's a lot of areas out there they get you know thousand dollars an acre, and so you you know, lease forty acres, you get forty thousand dollars every three years, and you know, you're not going to take any new leases out there. Mm-hmm. The existing leases you have generally. If they expire, um, you know, you're losing, you know, literally potentially millions of dollars in assets because of this 
because of this proposition, because the courts aren't going to be able to rule on it. It's not going to be an overnight deal. I expect it to take, you know, to find to go through and get a final decision. I expect it'll take, you know, a year or maybe longer. Um, and so you're going to have a bunch of leases expire and the remedies for the companies are going to be you know, relatively limited as to, you know, you're, it's not like there's a the entity to go after. This is a proposition that we just don't know whether it's enforceable. I personally, I think it's a taking, which is unconstitutional, and I think it's a, the way it's structured is very clever. But I think when you look at all the um, the legal arguments and the facts that uh, it is the surface owners are essentially condemning the mineral owners who have a you know a vested fee simple interest, just like if you owned a house or an apartment or something. And I you know I would love to you know be involved with expert witness. <laughs> In the uh, in, or you know, submit briefs uh, in support of the mineral owners and and in the industry, and I I hope it doesn't get there. I hope the um, I I hope saner heads prevail. But if you look at the polling, if you like I say these you know, two of our experts had they predicted that uh, this was this is what's going to happen. Okay, well, we're going to wrap it up with this. You can find Joe Dancy on LinkedIn. He posts a lot of good stuff there by searching Joe, D-A-N-C-Y, Joe Dancy. Or you can look him up at the University of Oklahoma as he is the executive director of Oil, Gas, Oil and Gas, Natural Resources, and Energy Center. They have a great program. When I was up there, I got to meet some of their um, really good, really bright young students that are coming out, going to be lawyers, and um, hopefully we'll be fighting on the right side of these cases joe it was great to have you on again and uh, any last things uh, where people can find you or um, look you up at before I let you go no i just i uh, appreciate the opportunity to be on and i can say at the university of oklahoma we have a lot of good energy programs online programs so if you're interested and you have any questions uh please have them like i say contact me through linkedin or just find my uh, email address you can just search my name online and it'll pop up there at uh, ou uh the ou uh uh, mailing address. So thanks, Ryan. I appreciate uh, talking with you today. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Well, uh, well Ryan, I want to thank our guests again, uh, Joe, uh, David Blackman and Joe Dancy for coming on the show. Uh, lots of great insights. We, we got uh, lots of stuff that I, you know, some of the things that Joe was talking about, you know, with the, that bill didn't know about it. So good insights and Really appreciate them coming on, and I think to wrap things up, Ryan, we want to do the rig count today from Drilling Info. It was 1,147, 1,147. So uh, it showed zero zero percent increase over last week. Last week it was 1,143, so it's hovering right there in that, you know, around that 1140. Good deal. Yep, great show, man. A lot of good stuff, a lot of stuff to dissect, and uh, a little bit longer than normal, but... That's just how it goes when you have a bunch of guests on. So thank you for everyone. We kind of got uh, behind schedule there. So Joe and David were gracious to work with us, and we appreciate their time. And uh, hopefully we can get on Sergio Chapa. I don't know. I know he's changing jobs soon, so maybe we can get him on next Friday. Uh, but I don't know if he's, I know he's changing, so I don't know if we can get him on before then or not. But he is going to the Houston Chronicle. Um, again, I'll be in, speaking of Colorado, Josh, I'll be in Denver, I believe, the week after Thanksgiving. So if you're up there, let me know, 318-599-9192. Got a comment, concern, question, anything for the show, that's where you hit us up at. Also, please, 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 rating and review in iTunes. We'll leave a link in the show notes. And until next time, keep climbing.